Good morning. morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are God of love and that you know each of our hearts and minds and the condition with which we are are born and what we struggle. And we ask that you will um, send your spirit to lighten our minds, transform us, bring us back into unity with you, empower this message to go around the world, to uh, break through the, uh, the uh, distortions that have held so many people in bondage and, uh, and, and bring people to a real knowledge of your grace, your truth, your love, and your freedom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, the book of Luke. And the title this week is Jesus in Jerusalem. And when you think of Jerusalem, what comes to mind? The Holy City. Well, what do we know about Jerusalem? I thought I'd just give you a little quick history. Jerusalem is on a plateau in the mountains of Judea, uh, which sits between the Mediterranean on the west and uh, the Dead Sea on the east of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, It's one of the oldest cities in the world. It was founded around the fourth millennia BCE, and it was most likely first settled by the Canaanites, but then became part of the Egyptian Empire, and then uh, the Jebusites, uh, and David conquered it from the Jebusites, making it part of the nation of Israel. Now, if you think about a city, it has been destroyed completely twice. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked 52 times. It's been captured and recaptured 44 times. Um, if you think about that, it's a, const- it's a city of constant turmoil, constant conflict, constant fighting. And it's still today that th- there would be wars there if there wasn't restraining forces right now holding back. There were, there were people right now who would love to have a war to drive certain other people out and back and forth. Um, it's considered holy by three major religions. And the three major religions that think it holy keep fighting each other violently because they, they, over this holy thing. Now, what does that tell you about their idea of holiness? If you think about that. Okay, and, and today still, there are people from the three major religions that would fight the other two religions, kill, slaughter, to drive them out if they could. What's that tell you about their view of holiness? Um, the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jerusalem is actually referred to as Salem, and uh, Melchizedek is called the king of Salem. And the scriptures sometimes, as in Psalms 76, 2, refer to Jerusalem as Salem, and it says his tent in, is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So sometimes it's referred to Salem. And with all that in mind, this following description is actually, I did a lot of research and some historic um, references this week, and, and this description is consistent with the, the historical facts. And this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets 703. As soon as David was established on the throne of Israel, he began to seek a more appropriate location for the capital of his realm. 20 miles from Hebron, a place was selected as the future metropolis of the kingdom. Before Joshua had led the armies of Israel over the Jordan, it had been called Salem. Near near this place, Abraham had proved his loyalty to God. 800 years before the coronation of David, it had been the home of Melchizedek, the the priest of the Most High God. It held a central and elevated position in the country and was protected by an environment of hills. Being on the border between Benjamin and Judah, it was close proximity to Ephraim and was easy access to the other tribes. In order to secure this location, the Hebrews must dispossess the remnant of the Canaanites, who held a fortified position in the mountains of Zion and Moriah. This stronghold was called Jebus, and its uh, inhabitants were known as the Jebusites. For, Jebu- for centuries, Jebus had uh, been looked upon as impregnable, but it was besieged and taken by the Hebrews under the command of Joab, who, as the, re- as the reward of his valor, was made commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. Jebus now became the national capital, and its heathen name was changed to Jerusalem. So you get a little history there of Jerusalem. And the name Jerusalem probably comes from, the, look at the history of the names, there's several different potential derivations, but the name is pro- thought to be a combination of Yahweh, which is Yeru, if you look in the Hebrew, Y-E instead of J, and the Y is translated into J, like Yahshua was Joshua or Jesus, and transliterated into the Greek. So Ye, uh, Yeru Shalom, Yeru Shalom, or Jerusalem, or God, city of peace. And uh, as one of the derivations are thought to be. So, what is the significance of Jerusalem today? It's a center of conflict. It's still a center of conflict, isn't it? Political significance or religious significance? Significance in our Christianity. The actual city of Jerusalem on the earth, sitting over there, 
today? What, what significance does it play a role in our beliefs and well, there's still religions today that, that say that's where he's coming back to. Why do you think America is so pro-Israel? Now, on the, on the one hand, the people who want to take religion out of it, they will argue because it's the only democracy in the Middle East and we want to have a demet- and it's just political democracies supporting each other. And there's an argument to be made there, but I'm going to suggest to you that's not the primary reason why Americans are so pro-Israel. The primary re- reason is, is religious. What were you going to say? They want a piece of the pie. They want to have foot in the door if that's where things are going to happen. They want to have an end. It's American Christians, evangelical conservative Christians, who believe that Israel being reestablished in 49 was the fulfillment of prophecy and how they see the unfolding of future prophecy that uh, Israel, the Jewish nation, will, uh, will have a significant role in fulfilling God's purposes for the, the unfolding of the kingdom of God to come on earth. Well, if you think about this idea of a physical location on earth being important, I thought I would share with you um, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. And I'll just read it uh, from the remedy, which has a different slight way of saying it, but you can get the same ideas out of the uh, whichever version you're reading. Uh, starting in verse 19 through 24, this idea now of Jerusalem being somehow special in our worship. Uh, shocked and somewhat uncomfortable with such personal re- revelations, the woman said, Sir, to know such things, you must certainly be a prophet, so please help me with a problem. Our people have always worshipped here on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship God is in Jerusalem. Which is it? Jesus declared, Believe me, dear woman, the place where one worships God is not important. It is the condition of the heart of the worshiper that matters. Very soon you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship a confusing tradition of rituals that does not enlighten the mind and have no ability to heal the worshiper. We worship the Creator God, and our minds are enlightened and healed by Him because all He asks of us is sensible and reasonable. The plan to heal humanity from the infection of selfishness and sin is provided through the Jews. The time has now come that all true worshipers will worship the Father with an intelligent, reasonable understanding of who He is loving, admiring, and respecting the truth about his nature, character, and methods. These understanding worshipers are the kind the Father seeks. He is intelligent and reasonable, and his worshipers must worship him intelligently and reasonably, appreciating and valuing the truth of God's methods and principles. So what do you think of the idea that geographic location is important in our worship? How do we compare Jerusalem on earth today with the new Jerusalem? Have you ever just kind of contrasted the two? Are there similarities? Are there differences? Are there things we should take into consideration? How was the old Jerusalem? What was the foundation of the old Jerusalem? In other words, how did the old Jerusalem get established? The one on earth. When I say old, I'm talking about the one on earth. Not centuries ago. I mean the one today versus the new Jerusalem, the one that's coming. How did the Jerusalem on earth today get established? What methods were used for its... Subtlety and conquest. That, that violence, force, coercion, murders... Wars, strifes, killings. Exactly, exactly. What is the foundation of the New Jerusalem? How does it get established? Unselfish love. I heard her say unselfish love. If you're processing, though, the Bible does say that though we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons of heaven are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. So there's an aspect of war that can be brought in, but is it the same war and is it methods and the weapons being used, the weapons of the world? No, they're not the weapons. So it's not violence, it's not force, it's not tanks, it's not bombs. I'm going to tell you, much of evangelical Christianity sees a fulfillment of Revelation prophecy where all the nations, um, Gag and Magog, come down from all over the world attacking Jerusalem. And the United States is going to be a big player in there. And it's going to be fulfillment of, of, of an actual physical fight in the Middle East. But we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. We have divine power to demolish strongholds and we demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So the new Jerusalem is founded on truth, love, and freedom. Truth, love, and freedom. A completely different set of principles for the new Jerusalem. Yes? I'm trying to remember where the text is. I can remember the text, but I don't remember where, where, where it is. But it is peace like war is waged. I don't know that text. Anybody? Peace like war is waged. I don't know that text. I have to look that one up. So, when Jesus enters the new Jer- when Jesus enters Jerusalem two thousand years ago, riding on the colt, 
He is, he is ushering in, over and over again, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And, and what method is he using as he's coming in? Peace. And what, yes, what weapons does he use? He, truth, love, freedom. Even when they're beating him, they're killing him, how does he respond? Father, forgive them. Notice how he is contrary. His kingdom is coming right in the center of this other kingdom. And there's a conflict between the two. So notice the methods that Jesus employed were not methods of force, coercion, and violence because much of Christianity today is teaching that when Christ comes again, he's going to use those methods this time. The same methods that the Jews were hoping he would use 2,000 years ago. Second thing to notice the contrast between the New Jerusalem versus the, the Jerusalem on earth. We'll go back to the time of Christ now, but you could even ask even today. Maybe you can do both, time of Christ and today. What type of worship was practiced in Jerusalem on earth. And if you're stumbling with that question, ask the question, why did Jesus cleanse the temple twice? What type of worship was going on that twice he cleanses the temple? Ritualistic and external. Putting the ritual in front of the experience? Yes. This is what was happening, right? One of the things that was going on, it was a shadowy, symbolic, ritualistic enactment that could be understood properly, as symbols can be, to help people learn, but was it? And it also became very penal, legal, appeasement-based versus the worship in the New Jerusalem. What will worship be like in the New Jerusalem? Will it be shadowy and symbolic? and There's going to be face-to-face, love relationship, adoration with our Creator and our Redeemer, with the, the... hearts and minds of people to actually transformed. You see a, di- a big difference between the two, the new and the old. All right, let's jump to Sunday's lesson. See how fast we're moving today? Officially. Yeah, we're officially. <laughs> we visited Jerusalem on a trip, I guess last year, whatever. And I thought it was interesting that there was a cathedral near our church in one of the holy sites. And there's a ladder between one floor and the next floor on the outside that someone put there to help repair something. One floor of the church is controlled by one religion, and the other floor of the church is controlled by another religion. That church has been there for over 100 years because no one could agree on to remove the ladder. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Tells you everything you need to know. On um, the symbology on that one, I wonder if it often takes an external perspective to bridge differences. So, um, yeah, it's just if you think about the, 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 how we as human beings are so vulnerable to get caught into trivia, the latter is trivia. It's, irre- it's a completely irrelevant. It matters not. But how we are so susceptible to get caught into trivia and then argue about trivia, the color of the carpet in the church. <laughs> Electric organ versus a, a windpipe organ. And you know what I'm talking about, right? The trivia. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, taught, preached, and healed throughout Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and, and Perea. But one city held constant focus, Jerusalem. Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to the city. His entry into the city was marked marked the most dramatic and crucial week in world history. The week began with Christ's kingly march into the city and saw his death on the cross, by which we who were sin- enemies were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How does the death of Christ reconcile us to God? Any thoughts on that? I don't, I, that's absolutely true. Completely true. But how? It shows us his character. It shows us his character. So, are you suggesting that some somehow... There was a problem in regard to our knowledge of God's character that that was a barrier to reconciliation. Yes, I mean this is important. What you're saying: How does Christ's death, revelation of character, is that all that was necessary? It was important for God, for Christ, to reestablish that in a human mind, so that could be imparted to us. Nice. Yes. Could you use the word harmony? Yes. Or reconciliation. Harmony, unity. Yes, of course, that one Jesus prayed about. People will sometimes say that Jesus never talked about the atonement. Read John 17. 
Pray that you'll be one as I am one, me and you, you and that's all of us. That's oneness, unity, atonement. That's what atonement is. It's being back to unity, harmony. Yeah. When you think of this question, ask the ask questions sometimes. Okay. Was Jesus' death necessary to reconcile us to God in order to, did it need to do something to God to bring about reconciliation? Did it need to do something to God's law to bring about reconciliation? Then right there, just those two questions, if you've ruled those two out, then start going down all the Christian doctrines you've read and all the books you've heard, and you can start saying, well, wait a minute, then I've got to throw that out, I've got to throw that out, I've got to throw that out, because it's actually doing something to God or doing something to God's law. This is much of what is taught. How about, did something need to be done to the species human to reconcile humanity to God? Absolutely. So you can ask it this way. What was the problem that sin caused when Adam sinned at Eden? What was the problem that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? You can think about that. Yeah, what did it do? One, it caused, it was caused, I think, as you say, the lies were believed, the lies about God, so the character of God was misunderstood, caused Adam and Eve to distrust God, broke that circle of love and trust, and that, though, resulted in another cascade of events that need fixing now. Not just revealing truth, which is necessary for sure, that we trust him, but we're held in bondage not only by our distortions about God, but by our own carnal natures. We're wired into fear and insecurity and selfishness, and thus Christ became human to establish a new humanity back as God originally designed it to be, overcoming where we could not come by the exercise of, the, of his own hu- human brain, so to speak. Last two paragraphs. It says, this amazing scene fulfilled prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey and a colt, a foal of the donkey. Yet Jesus knew that this march of history, which began with the shouts of Hosanna, would soon wind up in Golgotha, where he would utter those triumphant words, It is finished. Though it was all according to God's eternal plan, his disciples were so caught up in the traditions and teachings and expectations of their own time and culture that they completely missed his earlier warnings about what would take place and what it all meant. And I thought as I read that, though though it was all according to God's eternal plan. I thought about that. Has it all been according to God's eternal plan? Was it God's plan that Satan rebel in heaven? Was it God's plan that Adam and Eve rebel? Was it God's plan that Judas betrayed Jesus? Now, be careful now because there are a lot of Christians out there that say yes. That it was God's plan for that to happen. I agree with you. We'll, We'll kind of clarify this in a minute. Was it God's plan that disciples run away and Peter deny Jesus? Was it his plan? Was it God's plan the Jews reject and crucify Jesus? Yes. Or was it that with his insight, he was able to see what would happen, therefore he made a plan to deal with, to, to be able to still reach through our brokenness? Yes. So, with that in mind, what was God's plan? To heal us. Oh, to heal, to, to fix, to restore, to love always, Right. To take what's broken and restore. You think of all those metaphors and all the parables that Jesus gave. The lost coin, the lost son, um, and, and all the things that, that Jesus taught. We, we ought to point to Isaiah about his description of the coming king and the coming Messiah. Yet we don't think about the end chapters which talk about a kingdom that would go on forever in a much different atmosphere than what happened. Exactly. If they would have been faithful, they would have accepted him. Yes, Russell. I've often wondered why human beings were created with with uh, free nerve endings to transmit pain. If if it was never intended, you know, God's original design was never for us to feel pain. Do you think that He intended us to to feel pain and therefore gave us free nerve endings? He knew that He would we would eventually fall and feel pain. Therefore, He put that into the design. As a contingency. Don't those free nerve endings also control touch and feel? We have pain fibers, we have light touch fibers, we have heat and cold fibers, we have uh, proprioceptive fibers, and so they're actually different fibers that, that communicate different signals, yes. Pain is a warning system. There you go. There you go. Well, we continue to, be, to have bodies, yes. and we'll continue to have to 
destroys the pain fibers. Doesn't destroy actual tissue. But without pain fibers, when they touch something that's damaging, they don't know it until they smell the flesh burning. <gasps> Ooh, now I've lost half my hand. And if you're really sensitive, those pain fibers were not designed to feel pain. They were designed to be sensitive. So as you're approaching, you feel the sensitivity and you pull back before it becomes painful. But prior to the fall, were there thorns in Eden? Um, were, they, were they fall out of a tree? Was there friction? Was there friction? It was still there. That's still falling up. Was, was there friction? Rub, rub your hands together so you get hot and it could get to the point that, well, you know, I maybe when to cut, stop right now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we believe that they were going to have children and they would be raised and be trained in the proper way, then there is things that they would need to learn. Yes. So I don't think God wanted them to experience pain in the sense of, um, destructive um, destruction, harmful, damaging stuff. Thus, the fibers were intended, I think, for sensitivity to lead us to corrective acts. Because it's, um, if you have a very sensitive conscience, for instance, you actually get uncomfortable before you actually do anything damaging and you never get injured. So sensitivity um, with intelligence can be protective. But once you deviate from that and then you get a corrupt world, then those same pathways can be communicate actually with something else. So this is a good, very good question. Very good question. Yes. Yeah. Can I go back a second? Yes. You were saying right before that about was this God's plan? Was that God's plan? Yes. Uh, was, you know, Romans eight twenty eight a scripture we all know very well. Growing up, that... Scripture, Say it for us. Say it for us so everybody knows it. Okay. And we know that... All things work together for... Yeah. Uh, growing up, all things work together for good... For them that love the Lord and called to purpose. Yes. yes, for them that love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Yes. But growing up, it depends on which version you read. Uh, that's the version I think most of us learned. At least later, somehow I noticed this two little letter word in there, in. And we know that in all things God works for good. Totally changes the meaning of that text because it's like, okay, you have a spouse, a child, die in a car accident. Well, it was the Lord's will. Everything works for good. Just want to smack them. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And it comes back, and what it's saying is, God does not call us evil. God says, I don't care what the devil throws your way. If you put it in my hands, I will bring you something good. That's a promise he makes. But he didn't cause the evil. And so when you say all this provisionary thing, he was not causing. He was being pro- this is, provisionary. This is very, this is very well said. And uh, that, that Romans 8.28, you said, you're exactly right. I've had many people tormented because somebody has done exactly what you've described where something happens and well it's God's will we know it's all all things are good working out for the Lord's good and and it's and that's why I point out to them in all things God works for good but not everything is good that's happening on earth there's lots of bad things happening on earth okay but through the bad God is still working for good he's saying give it to me and I will bless you in some way in spite of what so then we see God's plan then, what God was planning. God was planning to send Christ to fix what Adam did to the human race. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God planned to fix what Adam broke, basically. You want to put it that way. So God takes into account then, with his wisdom, his knowledge, his foreknowledge, he takes into account what he knows other people will do with the abuses of their freedoms. And then he plans accordingly to overcome those abuses to ultimately achieve his ends of healing and restoration. Amen. So Monday's lesson, it says, uh, Luke 19.46, it said, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You have made it a den of thieves. So what was the problem happening in God's house that caused Jesus to be so offended? And then, uh, 
Extortion. Ex- Extortion. And, you know, we, we have just traveled outside the country, and we've had to deal with money changers. You ever had to deal with money changers? Oh, man, you just, it's just something's wrong with that system that you lose money going both ways. Both ways, they take a little percent out, and they come back, take a little percent out, and things can go this way and that way, and it's just like this, it's like leeches, just leeches. That's what they were doing in the temple. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, get a sacrifice to sacrifice at the temple unless you purchased it in the temple coin. And people came from all over the world with their Greek coins or Roman coins, uh, whatever coins they had. And when they came to the temple, they would have to exchange those for temple coin. And then with the temple coin, they could buy the sacrifice. And thus, in the changing of the money, they were just ripping people off left and right in the changing of the money. Well, beyond, that, beyond the extortion and the, the dishonesty, it, it said that this is what God is like. It told the worshipers, this, this is how God's government operates. This is how God behaves. Right. So, yes. Yeah. So then doing that in God's house where they were supposed to be learning about salvation, they're learning a very arbitrary system of rules and so forth. So what do we understand from the entire story? Christ going in and cleansing the temple, pulling out the whip, driving out the money changers, the whole thing. What do we understand is being taught there? And I thought, let's understand this through the lenses of the seven levels. Let's look at what happened there and how do the different levels maybe describe this, what's going on. And so level one, and everybody remember what level one is, reward and punishment. So as they see Christ pull out the whip and, and turn over the tables and drive people out, what's going on? Well, they, God's mad and, and Christ is representing God and he's, and he's punishing them. They didn't, and, and this whip is there because they didn't do what God says. They didn't do what God says, so God's got to punish. Level two. They broke their deal with God. They got off script. They forgot to do the rules as they agreed to do. And therefore, it's a moral duty on God's part that he inflict punishment. And it's good to show righteous indignation. There you go. (laughs) Level three. All nations recognize that the ruler of the nation has absolute power and is free to exercise that absolute power anytime that ruler wants. And Christ, as ruler of the temple, had the right to use his absolute power to put things the way he wants them. Level four, they, broke, they were breaking God's law, and breaking law requires punishment. Jesus, as the judge, is stepping in to judge them and inflict just punishment. Level five, Jesus is overcome with love for the people. He understands human beings are in a terminal state of sin, and the temple was designed to be the teaching place to teach God's plan for healing and restoration. But the religious leaders were doing the opposite, They were making it harder for people to come to God for healing. Thus, Jesus revealed God's love. Love refuses to collude with lies. And always seeks to free us from falsehood and lead us back to him for healing. Love, and I want you to notice this, note this, Christ never hit people with his whip. He hit the furniture. And his demeanor was such while he was doing it that the children stayed by. They didn't run away frightened. Now just imagine, Sabbath morning, somebody comes in, outraged at the misrepresentations of God that is going on, pulls out a whip, turns over the communion table up front in the podium, drives out the leaders of the church in such a way that the children are not frightened. You see, there's something profound happening in the way Christ conducted himself. And the children stayed by. Level six, he contrasted God's law of love versus selfishness. The worldly system of selfishness was demonstrated by the money changers and the resultant turmoil, anxiety, fear, stress, the division happening constantly. He drove them out and gave, and then, the whole story, he stayed by and gave freely of himself to heal and to restore. And not only did the children stay by, but the sick stayed by and he started performing miracles. He started healing. And he started giving of himself to build up, demonstrating the two systems were completely different. And then level seven, Understanding God's creation is built to operate upon love, and selfishness infects the hearts of human beings, breaking the design resulting in death. Jesus used the object lesson of the temple, which, remember, destroy this temple, Jesus said, in three days I will build up. The object lesson of the temple is an object lesson for the person, filled with the, the greed and the selfishness and the, and the turmoil of what, the, what these people are doing is, is a metaphor for the human heart being filled with selfishness and fear. And he used the metaphor of the temple, 
filled with greedy people to demonstrate his purpose. His purpose. Remember level seven, his purpose. What's his purpose? To cleanse humanity from that and restore the law of love in. And thus he drove out that, that evil, that selfishness, and he stayed by Christ central in the temple. Christ in me. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And you see his purpose is to cleanse us from this. And thus we become conduits of a message that heals others as they come back to reconciliation with Christ. So with all that in mind, any comments before I read something on Desire of Ages? Yes. In the second time that Christ cleansed the temple, he then spent the next several days in the temple teaching. Yes. And he had to have created space where it was possible. That was possible. And that space was created by marking a contrast between all the lies and the corrupt system in a different way. And they got their mind thinking, yes, Wendell. I appreciate very much this picture of God and Christ and he cleansed the temple and that that he did do um, healing and whatnot afterwards. Do we have any biblical evidence that that occurred as we describe it? Yes, it's actually, if you put all the the, uh, passages together from the four Gospels, you will see that. I actually, in my book, The uh, God-Shaped Brain, um, pull those texts together and show that when he drove out the money changers and stuff, that the children stayed by and he healed. But you have to get, the the four Gospels give slightly different uh, uh, words here, just a little bit different way they describe it. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking about the whip and how the children were drawn to Jesus, and yet, I, I think as a, a child, if my parents pulled out a whip, I knew what was coming. Yeah, yeah even a belt, right? Pa- how many kids, when your parents pull out a belt, run to them? But animals would respond to a whip. Are you saying that we're animals? We're, 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 okay, Joey, finish your point. Yeah, and I guess, I'm wondering if Jesus, he could have revealed himself in his divinity, just a little bit of it, and it would have cleared the place, I would have thought, without a whip. I'm wondering if he used the whip to relate to the people who were at level one, level two, or level three, so that they could relate to what he was trying to do, maybe. But he also took the time to braid it. Can you braid? I don't know. If, I don't know that... I don't, I'd like to know where you found that, that, that out, I, it, that he took the time to braid it. It makes a noise that animals have been trained to respond to. Yeah, the animals, but... but. Well, he, he drove out the animals. Okay. You know, I, I know you've got I see, so he's using it to drive the animals out, yeah. not the people out. Gotcha. Okay, I'm connecting with you finally here. Okay, thank you. You know, I think Jesus didn't just walk in and do this. He, he had planted, I think, the children saw what he was doing and saw the object of his ire and that way they were not afraid in other words they knew what he was going to do they knew where he's going to take care of and they weren't the ones that were going to get the end of that whip I find it interesting that there's a tendency to be politically correct always and this was if you look at it from a political standpoint this is one of the worst things christ could have done to win the allegiance of the leaders he's basically going and saying going against them and basically setting it up where they're going to hate him more. So there's a place where right has to triumph and you have to just be politically correct. And I want to intervene on that right now because this is exactly right. How do you draw that line? Because you're, what you just said are taken by people who have a very imperialistic law construct, have a, have a system of rules where somebody else doesn't have the, observe the rules the same way, and we must call sin by its right name, and we must go out there, and it doesn't matter if we're offensive. We'll put billboards up. You know, Sunday is the mark of the beast. It doesn't matter because we're going we're gonna to just drive out those money changers from our society, okay? No, what's the difference? Love. Love is a difference, number one. And where do we draw those lines where we, where we, don't, we don't compromise? Design law. Yeah. We don't compromise with tobacco and say, you know what, it's okay, kids, if you smoke tobacco, it won't hurt you. It's all good. Or drugs or whatever it is. It's design law stuff. And, and this was design law. They were actually infecting the minds of people with such con- distortions about God, it was destroying them. They were living in fear and terror. It was superstitious. They had so many superstitious beliefs. They believed that if you got into a body, a, a, a little fountain of water before anybody else, when the wind blew the water, it was an angel coming down. And if you got in fast, then you would get a miracle and get healed. Superstition. They were superstitious people. Their minds were completely corrupted with these types of ritualistic stuff. They couldn't even see God anymore. So this is where you take a stand on the truth, on, what's re- on, on reality, how reality works. Pray to the fall out of that. That's, that's what my point. Yes, yes. Isn't there something to be said about the condition of the money changers and the condition of the children? The, the money changers, when they're confronted with, yes. with divinity, they're, 
they're convicted in, in their own hearts and they flee. Right. The children, right. they're innocent children. They're, they're drawn. Right. They're drawn, so, they're so, drawn to so this is a metaphor also of what happens when Christ returns and reveals himself. Those whose hearts that are in unity with Christ, we love him. Those who don't are terrified of him. So this is out of Desire of Ages, page 161. It says, in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. Are you following the metaphor here? That whole system, Old Testament sanctuary, Solomon's temple, Herod's rebuilt temple, it's only a metaphor for you, the person, to be a temple where God dwells. Let's keep going. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high Destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. Now, Adventists particularly, get your mind around this next portion. Because we have a cleansing of the sanctuary doctrine that is foundational to this organization. Get to this next, next sentence. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. The Lord, and then she quotes Malachi 3, 1 through 3. There's a quotation from scripture. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he comes, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify, which is another word for purify, cleanse the sons of Levi, or the Levites, and purge them as gold and silver. What's the lesson? What's, what are we supposed to learn here? How does this connect to where we find ourselves in history? And let me just throw one more in real quick. This is out of Great Controversy 426. Because Adventists have this idea, Daniel 8, 14, 2300 years, the sanctuary be cleansed. Listen to this. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8, 14. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is presented in Daniel 7, 13. And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi. I just read it in that other quote are descriptions of the same event. You hearing that? In other words, do you have this view that before Christ comes, he's working to cleanse people, to restore hearts and minds, to bring us back into unity with him, to cleanse the spirit temple, to write the law in the heart and mind? Or do you have this view that there's some smoky room up, upstairs somewhere, books are being opened, records are being reviewed, legal pronouncements are being made? The Bible is clear, your body is the temple of the God of God. So I, I put this in the notes, I bolded it out, because I think I get a lot of questions from all over the world about what do you understand the investigative judgment to be? If you understand it through design law, then you understand it's a bidirectional investigation in this way. It requires that God is searching us, as David prayed, to find the wicked way in me, and to create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. As a doctor searches to accurately diagnose and then prescribe and heal and restore. So God is investigating or searching us as we open our hearts and say, Lord, search me and find the wicked way in me. God is investigating us that he might create in us a clean heart and right spirit. Investigating our characters to accurately diagnose. But we are to be investigating the truth about him. To be won back to trust so that we will open the heart and allow him in in order to be healed by the spirit who takes what Christ achieved and reproduces it in us. And metaphorically speaking, we're going to talk in old symbols and metaphors, that process is the application of the blood to cleanse the temple. 
Or, if you want a more modern metaphor, it's eating the bread and drinking the wine at communion service. It's internalizing into your being the bread is symbolic of the body or the word of Jesus Christ, that the truth of who he is is taken into your mind, soul, character. And the wine is symbolic of his blood, which is his life, which we then become like him and live his principles and methods. We have the life of Christ in us, in our hearts and motives. That's we take in the knowledge of God, the truth of him, and we live the life of him, the bread and the wine. Symbolic. It's symbol of a reality of an experience. Yes. I think it's really cool the way those the, the two experiences tie together. The that experience where Jesus said, "You have to eat of my my." John six. Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part with me. Yes. Taking that in back to the garden when God said, "Don't eat of the tree." He wasn't talking about the fruit. He was saying, "Don't take that into your being. Don't eat of what you're going to hear there." Don't let that become who you are. Primarily, that's right, because the, 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 the thing that really corrupted them was believing the lies, which then led to the taking of the actual physical fruit. Yeah. Well done. With that. Tuesday's lesson. See how fast we're moving this week, guys? We're going to speed train. Okay, first paragraph, it says, The parable of the wicked vine dresser gives us a lesson in redemptive history. The history of that, hi- the center of that history is God and his continual love for for erring sinners. I, I agree with that completely. Um, although the parable was specifically addressed to the Jewish leaders of his time, they knew he had spoken the parable against them. It is timeless in its reach. It applies to every generation, every congregation, every person on whom God's love and trust has been poured out and from whom God expects a faithful return. We are today's tenants, and we can draw from this parable some lesson on, hi- on history as God views it. In the parable of the wicked tenants, what happened to them? Do you remember the vine dresser and the wicked tenants? And bring them, bring them here and kill them in my presence. The tenant killed them. Well, the owner, vineyard owner, killed them. This week, I was listening to um, local Christian radio, and the DJ read out of a book um, called "When Christ Comes" by Max Licato, and I'm going to share with you what was read on the radio. And this is from page 117. Does hell serve a purpose? As much as we resist the idea, isn't, it, isn't the absence of hell even worse? Remove it from the Bible. At the same time, remove any notion of a just God and a trustworthy scripture. Let me explain. If there is not hell, God is not just. If there is no punishment of sin, he- heaven is apathetic towards the rapists and pillagers and mass murderers of society. If there is no hell, God is blind toward victims and has turned his back on those who pray for relief. If there is no wrath toward evil, then God is not love, for love hates that which is evil. To say there is no hell is also to say God is a liar and his scripture is untrue. The Bible repeatedly and stoutly affirms the dualistic outcome of history. Some will be saved, some will be lost. <laughs> I agree with the last sentence. Yes. Um, so as you, as I heard this, I actually just felt sick. This is this represent. You know, this is the common held view of God in Christian world today. In our in our own church is infected with this view too. It's it's preached and taught in our own church. So what moral developmental levels is argument based? Well, there's there's an aspect of one. It's one through four. You can see the wrath element in level two. You can see the punishment level, but you can see the law and justice in level four. So it's like it's a, it's a merging of those. But more importantly, what law construct is it based on? It's right. This is this is the kind of theology you get when we exchange the truth of God's law. Remember, it says in Daniel seven twenty five, the power to rise and seek to change God's law. And when we exchange the truth of God as the creator, designer, his laws are the protocols upon which reality actually exists to this idea that functionally his laws operate no different than what a created being can do. We can't make reality, so we make up rules. And then we enforce those rules with threats of punishment. And we want to be just, so we'll have a judiciary examine whether you really meant to do it or didn't do it, look at the evidence for and against, and blah, 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 blah. But then when the judge rules, then we punish. And so we teach God operates like this. But he's just because he's got the proper judge who can investigate all the facts and know the real truth. And if you accept the you know, legal loopholing, 
Have somebody come into your, um, you know, your, your death row cell and take your place in the death chamber and get killed in your place and you can apply that death to your account and then you can go off scot-free. This is what happens when you accept the imperial law construct. And then Christian leaders wonder why Christianity is having such a hard time continuing on, growing, whatever. And the answer is to make the church services more creative or make... See, Satan is setting the world up to impersonate Christ, guys. He's setting the world up to impersonate Christ. How? By getting people to believe that God functions like we do. That it is just and right to punish the unrepentant. And thus Satan is going to come and he's going to do some miracles. He's going to speak some cool things. He's going to have a nice fireworks show in the sky. He's going to talk about how the world's falling apart because his power to heal and restore is restrained by those who continue to rebel against him. And that, if the, and that he loves the others so much he can't put up with rebellion any longer. He's been patient as long as he could. And justice will require if they don't repent and worship him that he must punish them. And the world is going to go, amen. This is our God. We have waited for him. I'm going to jump to Thursday's lesson, and then we maybe come back to Wednesday's lesson. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. Jesus founded the Lord's Supper against the historic context of the Passover feast. The Passover setting underscores human impotence in contrast to God's great power. It was, it was as impossible for Israel to free itself from Egyptian bondage, bondage as it is for us to free ourselves from the consequences of sin. Liberation came from God as a gift of his love and grace. And this is the lesson Israel was to teach its children from generation to generation. Just as the liberation of Israel was so rooted in history by the redeeming act of God, so the liberation of humanity from sin is grounded in the historic events of the cross. Indeed, Jesus is the Paschal Lamb, and his Last Supper is the proclamation act where the community of faith gives expression to the glorious and decisive significance of the death of Christ. First question. And I, this is a question, and, and I'm open to discuss this. I'm not saying I, I have the final word on this at all. But it, it, it's a question that I ask of myself. Was Jesus setting up a new ritual, a new sacrament, a new festival to be observed every year in place of the fat Passover? Is that what he was doing? Well, let's think about that. Did they, the night of this Passover meal, have implements, that word implements, for their service, that could not be found at any home at any time for any meal. Now, see, if you look at the sanctuary service, though, they had special loaves, 12 of them, kept in the holy place with incense on them that were actually made with a special recipe that you couldn't go to any home and you couldn't find. So in the sanctuary service, each Sabbath, the priests would get together with um, with the high priest in the holy place and they would eat those 12 loaves every Sabbath which was symbolic, the bread, I'm the bread of heaven that's come down, and this, the, the priest of believers joins with their high priest Jesus every Sabbath together in the holy place of our relationship with him, the church, and partake of the bread of life, the word of God. This was a symbolic teaching of that system. So there was a special bread there. Was the bread they were using at Passover, this last supper, was it special like that? Or was it just regular bread you get anywhere? Other than it was unleavened. It was unleavened, but they, in the Middle East, if you know what the Mediterranean diet is, much of their bread is that pita bread, that flat unleavened bread. So was he actually setting up a ritual, a special service to be done every 13 weeks? Or was he saying, whenever you get together and break bread and drink the grape juice, remember me. Remember what I've done. Remember my broken body. Remember what I've achieved. Remember I said, shed blood. Remember you're partaking of me every day, daily. What's Paul say? I die daily. Does he want us to remember and partake of Christ every 13 weeks? Or does he want us to remember and partake of Christ daily? Uh, just, just a thought. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm off base on that. And then the sentence in the middle, it said this. What do you think about this sentence? Maybe you think I'm nitpicking here. I don't know. It says, it, wasn't as imp- it was as impossible for Israel to free itself from Egyptian bondage as it was, as it is for us to free ourselves from the consequences of sin. Any concern about that at all? The key word that bothers you is consequences. Yes, I'm glad somebody saw that. Think that through. It, when Jesus, when John the Baptist said, "Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the consequences of our sins," is that what he said? What did he say? Lamb of God who takes away the sin. 
This idea of consequences being taken away, it's coming out of, again, imperial law. The problem in imperial law is when you sin, there's a consequence. Punishment must be had. Jesus has come to free us from that consequence. must free us from that punishment. But that's not it. Under design law, there's actually a state of being. We are sinners. And he's come to take away that, that, that fear, that insecurity, that selfishness, to write the law in the heart and mind, to give us new hearts and right spirits, to re- give us the mind of Christ, to recreate us in his image. He's come to take away sin itself. At least this is what I think. What's so horrific about that concept is that it's really saying there are no consequences to sin unless the imperial punishment comes in. Yes! There are none. This is what they're saying. And he, and he can take the consequences away. And that's another point, if you think about it. Will the consequences for sin actually be taken away? If you understand what I'm saying here. Why is there first death experience? Why do people die the first death? Because of... Sin, right? If there was no sin, no... So first death experience is a consequence of sin. Will all those people who have died it have that experience removed from their record in their history? Or will they still, even if they're resurrected and live eternal in the future, have had gone through that experience? That's a consequence that they've already historically done. That consequence doesn't get taken away. How about suffering, sickness, disease, injuries, wounds, assaults, rapes, murders... Why do these things occur in the world today? Because of sin. It's historic. Will the historical record and facts of those things, when in the new heaven and the new earth, when David and Uriah and Bathsheba meet, will Solomon still be around? But he's a consequence of sin, isn't he? Isn't, isn't he a consequence? If David hadn't had the relationship with Bathsheba, would Solomon have ever come into being? And, ha- and was that a, a, a righteous or sinful relationship as it started? So is Solomon not a consequence? So he's going to take away the consequences of sin? He's taken away Solomon? Take away the selfish heart. Yes, but that is not a consequence. That's the cause of sin. That's the, the root infection. That is the sin itself. He takes away the sin of the world. And, and I'm telling you, this is a direct... When you really get your mind contrasting design law, how reality works, versus imposed rules, you will see this. The stuff will pop out at you. And this is why they, it's just an evidence that the infection of Rome's change to God's law is powerful in Christianity in our church as well. We're, 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 we're suffering under that weight. So, with all this in mind, oh, third paragraph says, Jesus' assertion that his blood was to be shed for many for the remission of sins is to be remembered even to the, uh, to the end of history. And this question, remission of sins, what, what law lens do you hear that, that language through? His blood is shed for the remission of sins. Well, from the same book, When Christ Comes, Max Licato, page 108 to 109. Imagine this event. <clears throat> Imagine this event. You are before the judgment seat of Christ. The book is opened, and the reading begins. Each sin, each deceit, each occasion of destruction and greed. But as soon as an infraction is read, grace is proclaimed. Disrespected parents, age 13, pardoned. Shaded the truth at age 15, pardoned. Gossiped at age 26, pardoned. Lusted at age 30, pardoned. Disregarded the leading of the Spirit at age 40, pardoned. Disobeyed God's word at age 52, pardoned. The result... God's merciful verdict will echo through the universe. For the first time in history, we will understand the depth of his goodness, itemized grace, catalog kindness, registered forgiveness. We will stand in awe as one sin after another is proclaimed and then pardoned. Jealousies revealed, then removed. Infidelities announced, then cleansed. Lies exposed, then erased. It's all about behaviors and there's nothing to do with it with you heart. The other part of that is all that happens before because that's how you get the heart transformation that helps you understand and accept. And no, see, this and an fully the love of God. Okay. That transformation happens here before. No, no, see, you're, you're talking reality. No, we're, we're talking fantasy here, okay? We have to, again, no, this is a good point. Under the nominal Christian view, and much of, of Adventists think this way too, what happens here is the legal partaking of the blood of Christ applied to one's heavenly record now. It's the transformation happens right here. That in these views, we're not transformed now. This is why Paul says in Timothy, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. 
because they have all this godly stuff. They claim the blood of Christ. They apply it to their records. But there is no belief of transformation. You talk to most Christians, can you be transformed to live a life of victory in Christ today? And the answer is no. And they will say, we continue to sin right at the time Christ comes. And that's because they focus on imperial law and they focus on behavior. And they say, are, are you one of those perfectionistic teachers? Are you teaching that we will never make any mistakes and we will never, never fall short before Christ comes? Are you per- teaching perfectionism? Let's go over to design law. How many of you that are sick, let's say you've got anthrax infection, your lungs are diseased, you're spreading through your body, you say to the doctor, doc, I only want to be 80% well. How many want to be perfectly healed? Now where's the pressure? Is the pressure on you, the patient, or is the pressure on the doctor? Pressure's not on us to perform. The pressure's from us to partake, to participate. And the perfection, by the way, biblical perfection, is not about behavior actions. It's about heart motives, and thus the perfect, when Christ comes, are those that love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as their self, described in Revelation 12 in these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They love God and others more. They're not driven by survival of the fittest, fear instinct, I'll kill or be killed. They're willing to give their lives so others might live. That's the motive of the heart. It's not about the specific action one takes. Thus Rahab, in the walls of Jericho, puts her life on the line and is willing to die to protect those people, but she lies. But where is she found in Hebrews? She's one of the faithful. She's, been, she's one of the renewed. She's one who loves others more than herself, even though she doesn't behaviorally understand all the way God behaves yet, her heart's in the right place. And this is design law versus imposed law. And the behaviors do change as that heart changes. And so the records, as we understand rec- records under design law, think medical records. Medical records. And medical records only come into evidence when the practitioner is being accused and sued. Not to, the records do not come into evidence to condemn the patient in a judicial process. If you're looking judicially, the records don't come into evidence so the, the magistrates and the judicial system can punish the patient for their symptoms. The records come into evidence when the doctor has been accused of malpractice. And this is what devil's accusations have always been against God who has not practiced properly. He's arbitrary. He pays favorites. He's, he, he, he doesn't do things in a righteous way. And thus, the records are revealed not to condemn any of the lost, but to reveal that even in the lives of the lost, God did everything for every one of them and they're only lost because they wouldn't partake of everything he did for them. And clearing those records will not make the patient... Yes. Far less oh, I have so many good metaphors for that. You guys can think these up. But, you know... You just think about your child being sick with a terminal disease and you go to the doctor with the rec- record documenting the disease and the doctor pulls out all the records of disease and sticks in white sheets of paper and says, look, perfectly clean record, you're going home. I've cleansed the record. Your child's still terminal. This idea that he's cleansing records, the only way to get your record in heaven cleansed is for you to have a heart and mind cleansed here on earth. Amen. That's the only way. Because the records are documenting accurately your character. So that's David, create me a clean heart. Yes. Create me a clean heart, renew a right spirit. It's all the metaphors. Take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, the law written on the heart and mind. We have the mind of Christ. We're reborn. We're recreated in the inner man. The old is gone. The new has come. All the metaphors of Scripture are actually transformational in the being. And that is why David, who was one of the most prolific sinners in scripture was a man after God's own heart a man after God's own heart there you go we also have to mention the favorite metaphors that the other view has which is the robe of Christ's righteousness that truly is transformational it's not a cover of something that is diseased yes it, it is transformational under the imposed law model it becomes the candy coated rotten apple theory You've got a terrible rotten, rotten apple to the core, but if you coat it with the record of somebody else's record, then when the judge looks at you, they can't see how rotten you are. They see the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is covering you. That's the, the, the actual other model. You can read this in Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, I believe, uh, where it says um, that the robe of Christ's righteousness was woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. And she goes on to say that our heart is, when we accept Christ, our heart is brought into unity with his heart. Our desires are merged with his. We live his life. 
This is what it means to be clothed by the robe of his righteousness. And Christ addressed this when he, when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. This, he's, he's telling them, no, 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 no. It's not a, it's not a painted covering. You need to remove the, the dead bodies from within. And if you look, and if you look at Zechariah chapter three, the high priest Joshua, where he has his robes removed and new robes put on, and it says right in the text, "See, I have taken away your sin." And close you in new robes. It's the taking away of our sinful, rebellious hearts and giving us the mind of Christ so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for all that you have done for us, for your love, for your grace, for the truth about your character, your methods and principles. Lord, our our minds have been infected with, with false ideas. We ask for your spirit to come, the spirit of truth. Enlighten us, lead us out of that to back to the reality of your kingdom of love. And then empower us to share this, this message with our friends and family, that the, the message of truth might enlighten the world, and you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.